we just felt like we had to share these to the world. You know, they were so amazing and they just went against all of these preconceptions people have about silent cinema that the only comedians were men or that they had, um, you know, more conservative gender mores back in the olden days um, or that, you know, kids these days are the ones who invented kind of queer and trans uh, gender and sexual expressions. Out of the silver shadows and into the Klieg lights of Movieland comes Nitrateville Radio. This is Michael Gebert in Chicago with Nitrateville Radio, the podcast that talks to people doing cool stuff in the world of vintage film. Brought to you by Nitrateville.com, the discussion site for movies from the vintage era all around the world. Misbehaving maids, teenaged anarchists, gender-bending spies, and slapstick tricksters. I talked to the curators of one of the year's top home video releases, Cinema's First Nasty Women. Plus, how do you put music to 99 silent films? I talked to the music supervisor behind the accompaniment for Nasty Women. Be a dear and be sure to subscribe to Nitrateville Radio at the podcast app of your choice. And leave us a rating and a review at Apple Podcasts. Thanks, you're a peach. Presidential debate between Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump. October 19th, 2016. Raise taxes on the wealthy. My Social Security payroll contribution will go up, as will Donald's, assuming he can't figure out how to get out of it. Uh, but what we want to do is to replenish the Social Such a Security nasty Trust woman. Fund by making sure that we... In that moment, in a 2016 presidential debate, an insult from Donald Trump became a rallying cry for film preservation. Well, the idea of nasty women was picked up defiantly by women opposed to Trump and his politics, and worn as a badge of honor. Among them were film archivists, who used this notion of misbehaving, rebellious, and anarchic women as a lens through which to approach films about women that had been sitting in archives often overlooked and ignored. In 2017, the first program of Cinema's First Nasty Women, films from the early 1900s and teens, was put on at the Pordenone Silent Film Festival, and other programs followed at subsequent editions of Pordenone and other festivals and film screenings around the globe. In September, Kino Lorber will release a Blu-ray and DVD set entitled Cinema's First Nasty Women. Featuring 99 films offering a radical way of looking at how cinema portrayed women in its early days. To find out more about it, I spoke with the three co-curators of the screenings and the video set. I'll let them introduce themselves. Hi, my name is Maggie Hennefeld. I'm an associate professor of cultural studies and comparative literature at the University of Minnesota. I'm author of Specters of Slapstick and Silent Film Comedians and a co-curator of Cinema's First Nasty Women. Hi, I'm Laura Horak. I'm an associate professor of film studies at Carleton University in Ottawa, Canada. 
and I'm author of Girls Will Be Boys, Cross-Dressed Women, Lesbians, and American Silent Cinema, and also one of the co-curators of Cinema's First Nasty Women. Hi, my name is Elif Rongen-Kainakje, and I am the silent film curator at iFilm Museum in the Netherlands. Well, I think I got some idea of what this is about just from hearing what your other publications are, but uh, who wants to kind of give the, the elevator pitch on what... Uh, Cinema's First Nasty Women is. I'll kick off the festivities. So Cinema's First Nasty Women is a four-disc DVD Blu-ray set that's coming out with Kino Lorber on August 30th. It features 99 films, over 14 and a half hours of glorious silent film footage sourced from 13 international archives and libraries, all with original, uh, new, all new music, uh, composed by over 45 different musicians and composers and um, many other accoutrements and special features. But basically, we've mined the archives of silent cinema for only the very nastiest women in the history <laughs> of film, kind of expansively conceptualized, ranging from slapstick comedies to queer cross-dressing adventures. And I'll, I'll hand the, pet, the baton to one of my colleagues. I can say a little more. Um, as you could probably guess, uh, we've been doing, all, each of us individually has been doing research on these topics for decades in film archives. So as we went to different archives to watch films for, in my case, originally my dissertation on cross-dressed women in American silent cinema, and Maggie likewise for her dissertation that became her book on uh, women comedians in early cinema, and Elif on all kinds of um, women actors who came through um, the iFilm archives, and one in particular that I know she'll want to talk about. Um, we were just, we just felt like we had to share these to the world, you know, they were so amazing, and they just went against all of these preconceptions people have about silent cinema, that the only comedians were men, or that they had, um, you know, more conservative gender mores back in the olden days, um, or that, you know, kids these days are the ones who invented kind of queer and trans uh, gender and sexual expressions. So uh, we found so many incredible counterexamples that, that we were able to watch by flying to an archive and making an appointment, you know, paying a bunch of money for a hotel, etc. Um, but we really wanted to be able to share them with the world, with the public, and with uh, students and teachers. So that's why we uh, talked to Kino about making a DVD set. Okay. Um, now, shall I add something? Sure. Just, yeah. just like a statement, maybe? Uh, well, the concept of Nasty Women really provides an opportunity to show and talk about anonymous uh, and forgotten actresses and their films. Uh, these films have been in the archives for many years, for decades, but of course, nobody really is even able to search for them because the, they are completely unknown and they're never really highlighted. And this is a concept where we have, we find the space uh, to highlight this work. Let's start, uh, you know, I saw a program of the films at Portnoni last year, as Maggie knows. Yes. A lot of them were, you know, from a really early period in, in film history. To me, I mean, very 19th century in how they portrayed women and men in the world. That, it, you know, there was a lot of servant girls, nursemaids, kind of those, you know, very traditional and hidebound things. And the comedy comes from them becoming unhidebound. Like the, the French film about the the nursemaids who go on strike. Um, obviously, a lot of the comedy is coming from 
these things that you just couldn't imagine happening. You know, nursemaids nursemaids would never do that. Uh, you know, what what do you see as the attitudes that are being displayed in these in these really early films? Your reaction is the first gut reaction that we also expect <laughs> to, you know, get from our audience, like to say, hey, but you know, how did that even happen? Or how was that even made into a film in the, you know, hundred years ago? I think we need more nursemaids or, you know, care workers waging general strikes in the street <laughs> now, today, in 2022. I mean, this is the kind of archival resonance of the project that we really hope will speak to present day feminist movements um, and inspire labor activism, inspire domestic workers to rebel, rebel in all sorts of, you know, messy and comically defiant ways. Like that's what I find so inspiring about these early 20th century slapstick comedies. Um, and yeah, we've done quite a bit of programming at the Pordenone Silent Film Festival. This whole project really launched in two, 2017 uh, with five programs at Pordenone. And we had a couple of follow-up programs in 2019 and then two more screenings last year in 2021. So also a major shout out to Jay Weisberg, the director of the Giornate for taking nasty women under his wing. And I'll say a little more about the comedy of, you know, the seemingly absurd um, in these films. So I think a lot of these films seem like they were probably made to kind of make fun of feminist movements to say, oh, look how far things have gone. You know, if you're not careful, even the nursemaids will be on strike. If you're not careful, you know, wives will be wearing pants and bossing their husbands around and going to bars and drinking and things. Um, and so on the one hand, they're kind of conservative, um, you know, fears. But on the other hand, plenty of people could see them as kind of utopian promise at the very same time. Like, oh yeah, maybe it wouldn't be so bad if women wore pants and went to bars and drank and bossed their husbands around, or maybe <laughs> nursemaids need to go on strike. And so the very same film can be both this kind of politically conservative horror show at the same time as it embodies some kind of uh, promise or potential that other people might find really exciting. I think you see the same thing today with political commentary where people say, oh, you know, those lefties, they want everyone to be like vegetarian bisexuals who, you know, live in anarchy. And some people are like, mm, well, maybe that's not so bad, actually. <laughs> so I see that, that that same kind of thing where the thing that's one person's nightmare is another person's dream. But but also to me it's a kind of testimony or a reminder at least of uh, how out there these movements were. I mean they were um, kind of daily fair apparently, so that people had the idea to go and react to it by making a film and also thinking that the audience would immediately connect to this even on a worldwide scale. You know, um, I mean also the other side of this is that. While doing the research, we also found out that, for example, having uh, women uh, cab drivers in Paris was not only normal, but it was even kind of a fashion around the turn of the century. So all of these things that have gone lost and forgotten over the hundred years uh, were actually there. And these films are kind of a reminder of that. Well, yeah, so it's interesting. I mean, obviously, a lot of the humor comes from sort of this what seems the surreal aspect of it. But you think that 
they're really coming out of feminist currents in the culture then. You know, obviously there's suffragettes and things like that at the time. Exactly, because I think historically this is exactly when this was happening. Not only the suffragettes like marching down the streets all over, you know, like in the whole world, but also things like, you know, women uh, trying to fight for equality in uh, you know workspace or like in the sports and so on all of these things were really happening uh, around the turn of the century and i'll say more also women's fashions were changing really quickly and actually adopting lots of men's um men's clothing and becoming um less form-fitting you know uh, eventually getting rid of corsets and things and so uh, and i think films had a big part to play in that so even if something was shown on film as a kind of you know, surreal or unreality or some kind of a gag or a dream, um, that actually did influence, you know, what people were wearing. And so um, over the course of the first decades of the 20th century, uh, women's fashions uh, did go really masculine. And I think these films were, were part of that popularization. And yet, even when it appears like the films are making fun of the women or who are sometimes played by men in drag, I think that comedy in particular is really a space for giving voice to social anxieties. So sometimes the message of the film appears quite ambivalent, like mocking the suffragettes or the striking kitchen maids. But um, it's that kind of image of surrealism that's so bizarre exaggerated but also kind of empowering and almost contagious in its weirdness that I think we can recuperate um, from the archive from the, the the feminist messages behind behind these films that are often quite ambivalent in their coding yeah um, I mean it, it's one of the things about film throughout history is that it manages to be progressive and reactionary sometimes at the very same time yeah um, yep. One of the ways that it's progressive, obviously, is that it starts creating female stars who have personalities. Um, although it's a little hard to say that someone like the character Leontine is a star <laughs> since we don't even know her real name. Uh, She's such a star. I'm sorry to interrupt you. She's such a star. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, a lot of the early films, there's uh, Leontine, there's... Um, I don't know. Rosalie. Uh, Rosalie Cunegonde. Exactly. Yeah. But these people were stars in the first definition of star, let's say, you know, uh, the, the, the moment when the audiences actually started to recognize their faces, although they were uh, not credited on screen, but the audiences started to recognize their faces and started asking, like, when will we see the next adventure by Leontine? When will we see, uh, you know, Cunegonde again, kind of thing? This is also how Max Linder began, basically, and then they, you know, create their own series, really. Right, yeah, I mean, Leontine is just like being the biograph girl or the imp girl or something at that point. We do have a few films on the set with the Biograph Girl and the Vitagraph Girl, Florence Turner and Florence Lawrence, allegedly the two of the first named movie stars. Right. But there are a lot of uh, anonymous, unidentified, nasty women at large in the set. <laughs> well, yeah, tell me about some of the, I mean, tell me about Leontine, because you have quite a number of her films on here. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll take this one. I'll field this question because I'm totally <laughs> obsessed with Leontine, similar to how Elif is obsessed with little Chrysia, who played Cunegonde and Zoe. So Leontine was um, 
a French comic character. She had her own series, which was filmed in Nice by Pate's Comica division from 1910 to 1912. She, the series made about 24 episodes, as far as we know, a little over half are still extant and they're all included in the collection. They come predominantly from Gaumont Pate archives and two from the eye. And Leontine is a tomboy. She's just a total hellraiser. Um, the you know premise of each film is that she has some object she fixates on that she wants, like a helium balloon, or she wants to t sail her toy boat indoors. And then she just destroys everything that stands in her past. So she floods the entire house just for the privilege of being able to sail her toy boat indoors. Um, in another film, she steals an inventor's electric bat battery. And the film ends with her in the police station where she electrocutes the local police department. <laughs> So in a way, that the message of the film or the comic anarchy um, resonates with, you know, um, global anti-police uprisings in the 21st century. But it's also just like totally wild, joyful, anarchic. And I find it deeply inspiring on that level. But yeah, we've just credited Leontine as Leontine. There are a few other pate comedies in the set made in Nice around the same time in which she appears as an extra or a different character. And for a while, I had no idea what happened to her after 1912. Um, but a few years ago, Marianne Lewinsky, who's also involved in the project, and I know and has been a guest on this podcast, um, she told me that she saw the actress who played Leontine in a Gaumont film from 1916 called uh, La Gordette, Gentleman Cambriolore, which was a parody of uh, Les Vampires made by Foyard and starring Musadora. And the, the actress who played Leontine has a decently sized role as the cook who goes in disguise as part of this um, burlesque plot. And, um, you know, I've been looking through reviews of La Gordette, but they're, you know, um, Leontine is not credited by name. So the mystery continues. But I hope that one day we will find her. And tell me about Cunegonde. <laughs> well, I'll take that one then. Uh, <laughs> in a similar fashion, like... Uh... Maggie's obsessed with the Leontine. I've also got obsessed with Cunegonde. And it was the same thing, really. Like, how can we have these films and not know who the person is? And how come they were never really credited uh, anywhere? Um, so, because we have in the I collection only, you know, eight films from the 25 that were ever made in the Cunegonde series. I also challenge now the fact that these films were not to be found in other archives. I mean, I'm quite sure that actually they are. Um, it's just like you need to know what you're looking for in order to find it. And that's how I expanded on this uh, research, really. Uh, a few years ago, I presented my I present my first discovery, namely her real name, her real stage name, maybe, which is Little Crisia, at the Library of Congress, mostly lost workshop. Um, and ever since then, we have been, you know, looking for more and finding more about her. And it turns out that she was um, also a vaudeville kind of, you know, stage actress and maybe perhaps even a circus uh, act uh, circus performer before. And uh, so this kind of fluidity between these performances makes it also a bit confusing, actually, I think, to create these people's uh, careers. But uh, after finding out her name, that uh, made us realize or uh, actually that she also worked for Pate, she also worked for Ambrosio in Italy. So this career was actually much bigger than we ever uh, thought initially. 
the first two discs have themes. Uh, first one is domest- Disastrous Domestics and Anarchic Tomboys, and the second one is Queens of Destruction, which seems like more of the same in some, in some ways. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it really hints at, at what people were going for, and, and you know, and we're we're seeing the films are mostly up through the early teens uh, before World War One, that this this anarchy, this destruction. Was was just hugely popular for kind of obvious comic reasons. Tell me more about what you see in in the first two sets. Then one important thing for today's audience, I think today's audience thinks of slapstick as something you know, uh, I don't know, American and Keystone Cops kind of thing, uh, whereas this is a reminder to say you know, like actually in Europe already before. Uh, much earlier, let's say, than the United States, there was this kind of comedy, and uh, you know there was these disaster in the kitchen type of movies, and many of them starred women, really. Yeah, I mean, when you think of silent slapstick comedy, you know, everyone's aware of Charlie Chaplin, Buster Keaton, maybe Harold Lloyd or Max Linder, but just no one knows about how many women participated in. Um, really physical, broad slapstick comedy in the early 20th century. So we have anarchic tomboys like Leontine and Disc One, Queens of Destruction, as you said, Mike, is more of the same, but it also kind of follows the tomboys through coming of age into marriage and, um, you know, their um, careers and domestic labor. Just so, um, you know, we know that um, Adolescence is sometimes a period of um, license for women to act out and resist gender norms that they ultimately have to conform to in adulthood. But disc two sets the record straight that no, women continue to be very nasty and rebellious well after the age of, you know, viable matrimony. And we have little theme sections on these discs. I mean, we have all the Leontine films that we could get our hands on. Uh, Sarah Duhamel in her glorious roles as Rosalie and then Petronelle for the Eclair Company and all of the little Chrissia films. Um, but we also have theme subsections like Catastrophe in the Kitchen, Catastrophe Beyond the Kitchen, Tyranny at Home. So yeah, there are recurrent themes. And like you said, a lot of unknown actresses. And just because we don't know their name, um, first of all, it's a scandal that we don't know their name. It's because their their films were inadequately preserved and exhibited in comparison to slapstick comedies featuring male clowns. Um, but just because we don't know their name doesn't mean we shouldn't celebrate them and curate them far and wide. So it's the um, goal of this project to spread the gospel of nasty women as widely as we can. And, and I, I just want to add that I think the reason why we don't know these films is because the archives also have not been able, at least, to do more research on this so far. So a lot of these films are simply put away as, you know, Kitchen Maid does this uh, or the maid does this kind of titles, given titles also often. And uh, one of the things that actually one of the breakthroughs that we had was when Maggie came to Amsterdam, I said, I'm going to pull out all the, you know, before First World War films that are not really properly identified that have a maid in it and then the first ta- thing we opened turned out to be a little Grisia and the second one was a Sarah Duhamel uh, in a Patenitsa so actually I would like to challenge all the archivists just to go and look in their uh, databases and pull out all these films featuring kitchen maids. I'm sure we will make more discoveries. 
such a brilliant idea. How long do you think the careers of these women in films tended to be? Um, I mean, you, know, you talk about uh, someone like Little Chrissy probably coming out of theater and the circus and things like that. So in some ways it might just be a momentary diversion for her in her career that she went and made some movies and then went back to whatever else she did. I think that's really indeed a possibility. I don't really think they were necessarily, you know, differentiating. Probably they were just getting any job that came their way also. And also probably enjoying, uh, you know, every job uh, according to its own. But anyway, uh, Thinking about Little Christia, for example, we always, or everybody always thought she worked for Lux Company in France, and then at a certain point, Lux just shut down in 1913 already, and you know that was the end of the career because we never hear about uh, Cunegonde again. But this turns out not to be true because she just moved on. She went to Pate, she even went to Italy to Ambrosio, and then she went to England and signed another contract with Phoenix. So this tells me that she was actually able to. To continue her career even over the you know uh, borders of different countries uh, the problem is yeah we don't know for example what happened to her afterwards uh, also a lot of people you know their careers during the first world war changed dramatically their situation changed and it's hard to find information it's a little bit different with the american actresses and laura can speak to some of these performers who appear more on discs three and four tended to have longer careers like the indigenous actress minnie Devereux. um we see well past the teens into the 20s florence turner obviously continued to work in the film industry into the talkie era whereas a lot of the french um and some of the italian and british slapstick clowns they really you know, just fell off the face of the earth as far as we know from the kind of archival sleuthing we've been doing around World War One. I. I mean, I thought Leontine was gone after 1912. It was a miracle to see a glimmer of her in 1916. Right. So do you think, I mean, World War One just had a devastating impact on the European film industry that tended to mm-hmm. put an uh, end to a lot of this? I mean... If we look at the the better known careers of the male actors, you know, if you think of Max Linder, if you think of Marcel Fabre, at a certain point they cross uh, the ocean and they come to United States and they try at least to continue their uh, jobs there. So really I'm hoping to find one of these women suddenly in the United States and then you know maybe changing their name just like Marcel Fabre did continuously and continue the career that would be like a sensational discovery wouldn't it yeah so so you don't know of anyone who managed to bring a French made character to the U.S. (laughs) I mean a lot of these films were really um uh, welcome in the U.S. Initially, Leontine was known as Betty in the U.S. during the time her series was running. But then, you know, as the film industry became increasingly xenophobic and there was a lot of gatekeeping and targeting of the Pate Company in particular, her films started being banned. And I think um, uh, the second half of the films produced in the series never even uh, screened in the U.S. They were shown in Britain and elsewhere across the Anglo Empire, but they were just like targeted by the reformist kind of um, uh, xenophobic film industry campaigns in the U.S. Hmm. Yeah, the Cunegonde films were also definitely distributed in the U.S. under the name of Arabella series. Mm-hmm. But as I said, Lux Company uh, shut down uh, in 1913, so that was discontinued. 
Now the third uh, set, your third disc within the set is Gender Rebels, and I mean this is obviously a style of comedy that we're pretty familiar with when it involves cross-dressing and that sort of thing, um, which is not all the films, but there's there's definitely an aspect of that. Tell me about that disc. Sure, I can pipe in here since um, so many of these were ones I found when I was doing research for my dissertation originally and in my first book. Um, so the amazing thing about cross-dressed women during this period is that they weren't just... Um, in this formula that we've come to know that uh, Chris Strayer has called the temporary transvestite film, which has you know very generic formula where um, a woman ha- or a person has to cross-dress for some external reason. There's all kinds of ca- you know chaos and comedy, and then at the end uh, they get married. You know they they change back into their ordinary clothes. They get married, etc., and it resolves everything. But um, in these films, and they're not just comedies either. Women uh, cross-dress. To become, you know, action heroes, to um, to be soldiers, to be spies, um, and also um, women are cast in male roles. So it's not that the character cross dresses; it's just it happens to be a female-bodied person who is enacting a male role, which of course was also very common in theater, um, although it was uh, kind of going out of fashion in film at this time. Uh, or towards the 20s in the later period. So um, so the exciting thing about these is that it's all kinds of cross-dressing and cross-gender casting that uh, we don't see today anymore. And back in, in this period, in the teens and in the 20s, every major woman star would have at least some cross-dressing roles. It was really part of the stock and trade. Uh, and there's plenty of famous women who have cross-dressing roles uh, who we didn't include because those are already easier to find. So we focused on ones that haven't been attended to. And there's also a number of films here where we don't know the actress, like Arranged Romance, which is a cross-dressing Western, um, The Boy Detective, uh, which has a great uh, uh, a female performer who plays a, a boy character who has to disguise himself as a woman in order to defeat some thieves, and there's just layers and layers of gender play. It's amazing. Um, so, so yeah, so actually both both the the third and the fourth disc um, explore on all the different settings cross-dressing can happen in. In the West, in the city, in a park, in... Um, you know, little girls, older women, like, it, it really just shows that the the kind of genre conventions that we see cross-dressing happening in now, and really for the last several decades, uh, it was not limited to that in the in the early 20th century. And it was really popular. You get it in every kind of genre. Well, yeah, no, I was really interested in this, uh, the Girl Spy series. Tell me about that. Yeah, it's so exciting to finally bring these to DVD, because... Feminist film historians like Jane Gaines and Jennifer Bean have been talking about Jean Gontier and the amazingly popular Girl Spy series that she uh, starred in and produced and wrote and um, co-directed with her husband. And so she plays uh, Nan, the Girl Spy, um, who's a Confederate uh, daughter in the Civil War uh, of, a, of a general. And so in each film, uh, she has some kind of mission she has to complete, uh, usually uh, by disguising her gender and also sometimes by disguising as um, a northern soldier. And she, you know, she blows things up, she does these crazy horse rides, she hides in a well, she jumps off a tree onto a horse. You know, she's like this original action star and she was very popular. Um, and also these were, these were, stories were based on uh, true stories of women 
who did serve in um, the Revolutionary War and the Civil War. Um, later, there'd be stories about women in World War I. Um, and so they were sort of part of this kind of folk storytelling about American, American wars. Um, and they were a really popular um, film subject because films could show off this action, um, both the athletic women performers and the incredible American landscape. In the case of this, the Girl Spy series, it was all shot in Florida. So you have like incredible moss, you know, trees and swamps <laughs> and things. So um, not super concerned with like the realism of where battles actually took place, but but still, you know, invested in spectacular landscapes and action stunts. Yeah. Now, I mean, at the same time, you had things like the hazards of Helen, which in pretty much all of them, she she's like a telegraph operator for the railroad, and somebody thinks women can't do that, and she show, sure shows them. What do you see as the difference between those kinds of series, and you know, which are pretty straightforward about simply a woman can too do a man's job, versus some of these others that involve, you know, gender doubling, reflexivity, whatever. Yeah, that's a great question. So the Girl Spy series was before the, um, you know, all the mo- the popular serials. And I think its popularity really gave people ideas like, oh, we got to make more of these. You know, people love them. So um, I think, th- so there are some um, Girl Spy, f- or sorry, there are, there are some... Um, serials with serial queens where they do cross-dress and there's some, there's some like Pearl White and um, Helen Holmes uh, both have some where they even play what seems to be a male character and then turns out to be a woman in disguise that you uh, get revealed at the end. So this kind of interest in the instability of gender um, continues through the serials. But the big difference, I think, is the serials were so invested in... Um, the recognizability of the stars, right? Like you should know that this is Pearl White. Um, and so that meant that the cross-dressing was always um, just a kind of a nod towards, you right. know, masculine attire, but it was it was really important that we, you still recognize this star as beautiful, as, as feminine. Um, whereas in these earlier films where they were also not doing um, close-ups, um, there was less of an investment in the recognizability of the lead performer. Um, and so you actually get, um, you know, more convincing styles of, of cross-dressing. Um, but I do think there is a continuity. And if we had another four discs, I would love to have <laughs> a bunch of serials. There, we actually had a conversation, me and Maggie, early on about, like, do we include these serial queens, some of whom are, you know, quite nasty, some of whom are cross-dressing. Oh. Um, and uh, we just there just wasn't room. Like I think someone else has to do another project that does right. full um, justice to those. Yeah. Yeah. We I, one other uh, important difference I'll just chime in briefly yeah. is that the serial queens, you know, um, Helen Holmes and Pearl White, the um, cliffhanger is often that they find themselves in these perilous situations from which they have to be saved by a man. And uh, at least in the Calum series, you know, um, Jean Gontier saves herself. She's, um, you know, the one who's who's authoring all of the kind of action and adventure. And she doesn't become ultimately vulnerable or episodically vulnerable in the way that some of the later serial queens do. And I think that's uh, an important difference. Yeah, that's true. Good yeah. point. Now, you know, we're still in the teens with so many of these films. And I feel like 
it changes a lot in the 20s you know to some extent women become flappers and things like that mm-hmm. you know just the nature of society changes but i feel also you know some of this stuff where women are so independent and self-reliant goes away in that time because the expectation is that we're setting up the romance with you know whatever man, mm-hmm. manly man she's going to wind up with at the end mm-hmm. um i don't know is that that jibe with your views yeah, I think jazz. that's true. Yeah, I think that's generally true. I mean, one thing that's interesting about the 20s with the rise of the kind of the romance plot and also the, you know, the attractive, recognizable star is um, you get a lot more sexual innuendo, right? And sexual play, including um, same-sex sexual innuendo and um, uh, kind of flirting with these European... They were associated with Europe... Um, you know, European sexual and gender styles that were more androgynous. And um, and so it's true, you don't get as many of the kind of rough and ready um, action heroines. Also in the in the teens uh, and before, they the films end with the pers- the cross-dressed person still cross-dressed and there's no there's no um, couple or you know ro- romantic couple or anything so there's a way in which it's sort of is comfortable staying with that gender trouble um, in the way that later films become not willing to do that but at the same time you do get a lot more of kind of winky winky kind of same-sex male and same-sex female um, flirtations and innuendos in the 20s these speak to larger changes that were happening in the film industry. I mean, we have two films on the set, The Knight Rider with Texas Guinan and Rowdy Ann with Faye Tincher, both of whom had their own production companies that were very brief-lived, so they didn't, the films that we include in the set were not made by uh, Tincher's or um, uh, Guinan's uh, film companies, but women in the late teens through the 1920s were being squeezed out of these kind of creative roles in the industry as directors and um, producers and company managers in particular. Um, And also, I guess, another difference in the 1920s comedies, they're much more, um, uh, much less broad and physical in terms of their style of comedy. They're more in the vein of sex farces about gender, misrecognition, burlesque, disguise, sometimes comedies of manners, but Mm -hmm. less of that kind of messy, anarchic slapstick that we see so much in the early aughts and 19-teens, particularly in the European comedies. Yes, I think that has to do with the length as well. I mean, in the 20s, of course, the future length uh, has to have some kind of a story that, you know, you can stretch a little bit and so on. Whereas mm. in the earlier films, it's just like a like like a gag, really, or it's like a physical comedy thing. And that doesn't really work very well. I think, you know, basically in the 20s, some of the comedies were not working for, you know, for these reasons anyway. And the ones that were working were maybe based on a play or a novel or something. So they did already have that length. But just putting one after the other, these, you know, physical slapsticky things were not working for anybody, really, I think. Well, let's talk about Faye Tincher for a minute. I think you just have Rowdy Ann on here. Is that a feature or is it... It's a two-reeler. It's a two-reeler, okay. You know, she was apparently a lesbian, and I don't know, how did did the world react to that then? Did they even comprehend such a thing? 
It's such a good question. I want to know more about Faye Tincher. I mean, I have watched... Um, she's not always playing kind of masculine roles in her other in her other films, like Rowdy Ann. Um, so, yeah. I don't know how people reacted to them. I mean, she was popular for a long time. Um, and she played... She had. She was known for wearing stripes, you know, in all of her albums. So she had a kind of, like, a look, you know, that was recognizable. Um but the thing is, like, she just hasn't gotten the attention that, you know, other stars like Gloria Swanson or Mary Pickford, you know, like, where's the biography of Faith Tincher? I totally want to read that. Um, yeah, so I don't really have an answer for you. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because I think people didn't, they didn't think it through as much as we seem compelled to now you know franklin pangborn can be kind of a nelly character or something but we don't really think of well who's his boyfriend you know yeah uh, i mean i i will say in um in theater uh like the in um 19th century theater you did have um female stars who were famous and also famously lesbian you know who had their partner who traveled with them then it was not a secret, you know, and, and, uh, God, what's her name? Uh, several of them famously played Peter Pan. Maude um, Adams, yes. Yeah, right, yeah. exactly. And so, um, you know, I think if we look to theater and the kinds of celebrity um, that were working there that then get transformed and picked up in film, like, there was a way in which there was a kind of... You know, like theatrical people were kind of allowed a different sort of lifestyle than ordinary people, right? And I think that went for film too, especially as it became like a bigger big business. Um, and so I do think um, there's a way in which people could, pe- people like Faye Tincher probably didn't have to be particularly secretive, but it wasn't a problem um, because the there there was not yet this. Um, this moral outrage backlash that you get, you know, famously with Patty yeah. Arbuckle and um, with the kind of den of vice thing that happens, um, you know, with the Catholics and others protesting Hollywood. So I think before that, there was a way in which you could just kind of live your life and, and people in film and theater were just sort of allowed to be a different sort of person than you say your average person in a, in a medium or small town. Yeah, and I think also, I mean, we just, we didn't need to know everything about stars then, you know? They could, yeah. They could be performers, but they didn't have to be our close buddy who we know everything about their <laughs> lives. Okay, so, and then the fourth disc, Female Tricksters. Tell me about that. Yeah, so uh, Female Tricksters uh, does include some of these 20s uh, films. Both, there's the, the two features in the collection are in the fourth disc. One is The Snowbird, which is a drama with uh, Mabel Tolliver, which takes place in the far north of Canada. Um, it's a kind of amazing frontier S&M romance. I don't <laughs> want to give it away, um, but shot on location. And then uh, the other big feature is Phil for Short, from 1919, with Evelyn Greeley, which is um, a, a kind of comedy of errors, comedy of manners, uh, where Greeley plays a... Um, uh, a girl named Demophilia, um, who does Phil for short, since Dam doesn't sound so good. Who's yeah. <laughs> who's um, who fluent? Would you rather in... be called Phil than Dam? Right. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So um, who uh, 
through various twists and turns, disguise herself as a boy and um, kind of inadvertently perhaps romance as a, a, a woman-hating Latin professor. And so it's about the, um, the kind of <laughs> misbegotten romance between um, this woman-hater and, um, and this girl and uh, in the context of, of classics. And, um, and so and that also, is... Yeah, go ahead. I was going to say, she also orchestrates these elaborate sapphic dances in the yeah. woods um, with women only. Um, and yeah, she, the, the, so the, the sapphic themes intersect with the yes. queer gender play and cross-dressing in really interesting ways. And it was written by... Um, Clara Berenger, who's a prolific screenwriter, and we showed it at Pordenone last year. It was a feature that played in the festival, but it also um, uh, screened online in the um, virtual program. So some people, some listeners might recognize it from Pordenone last year. And I, I have to say, this this film was a big surprise to me. I mean, like, who would have thought? Because on paper, it all sounds too odd to be true. But <laughs> when it plays, it plays so well, and the intertitles mm. are so funny, and oh, yeah, it's brilliant. really great. Yeah. Yeah. So you get all this innuendo in in these films, like Fell for Short, and then these two shorts from the twenties, She's a Prince and What's the World Coming to, which are really obviously playing with, um, like lesbian styles and icons at the time. Um, so I think that's the big trend to me, you know, who's interested in gender and sexual identities in media. Like you really see things, you know, they're not even trying to hide it really by this point. They're really kind of leaning into to these jokes. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like they're they're sort of acknowledging that we all know that's going on. So we're going to have some fun with it. Yeah. Which yeah. seems further than in the earlier films. And yeah, they're, I mean, they're actually... Maybe the only films from the twenties in the entire set. So I mean, it really sort of ends like Phil for Short is nineteen nineteen, so it mostly kind of winds up still within the teens. Yeah, there's two from nineteen twenty six. Yeah, but those are the outliers, really, definitely. I think those mm -hmm. are the nineteen nineteen and then twenty six. There's yeah. two twenty six films. So what yeah. what all happened that you know the kind of films that. Mm -hmm strike you as belonging to this series seem to be done by that point. Well, Women became I think... so much less nasty. And a lot of <laughs> well, those kind of rapid comedies yeah. have already been curated. Sorry, Laura. Didn't it, no, well, that's exactly what I was going to say, which is that um, a lot of the American 20s uh, women comedians, um, happily, people have already released some of them on DVD. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's still more to be found, but, you know, Mabel Norman, obviously, you know, wonderful. She's got lots of cross-dressing comedies, too. She's hilarious, sometimes very nasty. Um, but um, Colleen Moore, Louise Col Cazenda, yeah, Mary much, but a lot of the usual suspects like if you're um, you know a 19 teens 1920s American slapstick fan a lot of the female performers like Mabel Norman in particular who you'd expect to see in this collection are missing in action and that was a deliberate curatorial decision because we really wanted to focus on making uh, rare unseen obscure forgotten films uh, widely accessible yeah and I will say we have a uh, Excel spreadsheet with like hundreds more films we would love to have included, but sure. um, our producer Kino Brett Wood said 
Oh, 99 films is more than enough. And he's, yeah. he's probably right, logistically. Yeah. And, yeah. and and major thanks to Brett Wood, our producer, who's amazing. And I think this project ended up being so much more work for everyone involved than we'd ever yeah. imagined. So thank God that yeah. it's only 99 films. Right. Because that's <laughs> more than enough. But yeah. you don't, so you don't think there was like a movement in the film industry that we've got to we've got to get rid of all these nasty women women need to be nice in these movies you know once the 20s hit or anything like that when you look at Norma Talmadge that is definitely the case we didn't include her earlier work because that's already also on the the Marianne Lewinsky Nocinteca di Bologna DVD but Mm -hmm. Norma's short films from 1912 13 and so she's this funny-faced crazy uh, character and then suddenly in the 20s she becomes this you know beautiful posed lady and so on so (laughs) yeah in her career this was indeed the case yeah well and Gloria Swanson too I mean starts Mm -hmm. starts in slapstick and before long she's walking a leopard in Hollywood you know (laughs) well and I I think that the form of nastiness does transform from this knockabout like throwing plates you know blowing things up to to like the vamp right you know who's like destroying lives you know causing suicides um but you know in a totally different set of strategies yeah Yeah. Theta Bear is not a load of laughs yeah, <laughs> which is okay. Th- you know, Theta could have totally been a nasty woman in this collection, but again, we were pri- prioritizing um, performers and films that people were less familiar with. But something like the Hal Roach comedy, A Pair of Tights, you know, in which sure. like um, you know ice cream cones are dropped in people's faces and various you know unlikely body parts, maybe like ten dozen times throughout the film. That could have totally been in the set, but you know it's already out on DVD, so right. we wanted to make make way for unseen nastiness mm-hmm. <laughs> so what do you think people should take away from this what, what do you get from seeing all these nasty women in one place god help us <laughs> oh my god i hope everyone's brain explodes <laughs> um I really quickly if if we're winding down I just wanted to um, mention briefly because we haven't gotten to this yet that all of the films in addition to having you know English title translations for the uh, European films they'll all have Spanish title translations and this um, silent film curating collective in Puebla Mexico FIC Salente has recorded Spanish language video introductions and commentary tracks for a number of the films, and they're planning to curate all 14 and a half hours of the set at their upcoming silent film festival (laughs) in Puebla at the end of November, which nicely overlaps with Thanksgiving. So if you want to have an excuse to ditch, uh, um, you know, a kind of problematic American holiday, um, there are worse places to be than Puebla marathoning the archives of cinema's first nasty women circa late November. All right. Mm-hmm. One more excuse for me to uh, throw at my wife about why we need to spend more time in Me- Mexico, I guess. Um, I mean, I think one takeaway is we, especially folks who go to Pordenone or who have been longtime silent film festival or silent film fans, um, think, oh, we know what there is in the archive. You know, we know what silent film is all about, right? But I think this shows, like, we don't. There's just so much more. And, and this really has felt to us like the tip of the iceberg. And so um, we welcome more and more, um, you know, more, not just um, endless 
re-releases of Metropolis, but <laughs> more, more films getting out to more people. Like it's incredible, and and we also feel that these films have a lot to say to um, to people today, to young people, to activists today, mm. um, to feminists today. That um, that there is there's so much in the archive that uh, you know it's messy, it's problematic, it will make you angry, you know, as well as laugh. So, um, but we we just you know, hope that this is just the beginning of, um, of more, um, efforts between archivists, uh, like Elif and the folks we worked at, at these 13 archives and scholars and fans to, and, um, distribution companies to get, to continue to, um, to share these incredible, um, you know, often forgotten heritages with, with the world. Yeah, and, and I, I hope it will do well, too, because, uh, like Laura is saying, you know, the archives uh, have these films, but nobody ever asks about them, so mm-hmm. <laughs> they're always, you know, kept on shelf, and we get a little bit tired also, like, because they're always the same, same 10 or 20 films that get asked about, whereas here there are there's actually you know like so much potential and there are so many more uh, discoveries so i'm also hoping that people you know researchers uh, or future archivists and so will get really excited and more curious about uh, these other films let's say that they've never heard about yeah no i i think of it like what happened with Charlie Bowers, you know, a decade mm-hmm. or two ago mm-hmm. where, yeah. you know, there were, yeah. there were like five Charlie Bowers films. And once people really started paying attention to Charlie Bowers, then suddenly there were five more Charlie Bowers films because people had the films, but they never knew who that guy was. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Or they didn't think that anybody would be interested in it, you know? <laughs> yeah. And if you yeah. love that kind of surrealist object animation in Charlie Bowers films, you're going to love Rosalie's phonograph or Rosalie's <laughs> furniture, which are similarly kind of surreal. Yeah. yeah, that's the other thing, because these films actually also contain so many other things. They, they contain animation, they contain, you know, like split screens and so mm. on. So people, mm-hmm. you know, are really surprised once they start, sit down to watch these films. And, uh, and, and, you know, like often they go like, oh, I didn't know as early as that, that this kind <laughs> of device was. But actually, yeah, these are all out there. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. The, all right. There's an interesting thing. Let's each of you pick one film out of the set that that you think is really fun and people should make sure not to miss. Oh my so God! Hard. Just this one. So hard. It's like choosing question. a child. Yeah. I know. I know. <laughs> like choosing my, between my cats. Um, <laughs> I mean, I'm obviously gonna say Leontine, and of all the Leontines, probably Leontine's Electric Battery. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I, I, if I'm supposed to choose from Cunegonde, probably, or Little Crisia output, because I've seen them so many times, and I have to say that my favorite film keeps changing every time, sure. you know, over time. But at this moment, I really think, like, uh, Cunegonde femme crampon, where she is this really bad uh, housewife. She, she looks so sweet, and she sits down to do her handwork and so on. But at the same time, she throws a lasso out of the window to catch it. Uh, <laughs> You know, to bring her, her husband back to the home. So I think at the moment, yeah, I think Cunegonde Femme Crampons. Which is translated, I noticed, Cunegonde the Nasty Woman. 
exactly. exactly. We had some discussion and I was thinking, you know, like, what is this such a strange uh, way, you know, like such a strange, uh, um, how to say, you know, like a French saying. This is, I think, also out of fashion. But uh, we thought, okay, this probably does translate as nasty woman. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. I, it's really hard to choose, but I will go with The Red Girl and the Child. Uh, which stars Lillian St. Cyr, who is a Ho-Chunk actress who also performed under the name Red Wing, or Princess Red Wing. And it's this incredible um, action-adventure starring an indigenous woman who cross-dresses, does these amazing stunts um, hand-by-hand over this crevasse. She did her stunts herself with with a child strapped to her, and um, it just has everything you could want um, and is... And it's a beautiful nitrate print from MoMA, tinted, you know, Mm. so it's just like such a pleasurable experience and just so incredible to see this totally kick-ass indigenous woman in 1910. (laughs) So, um, so that's my choice, Red Girl and the Child. Well, yeah, let's, let's talk about that a little bit. I mean, you talk about, uh, in the, in the Gender Rebels uh, set in particular, there's, there's Lillian St. Cyr, Red Wing, as she was known. Uh, there's Sur Aoki, who was uh, mm-hmm. Sesu Hayakawa's partner, and and in a number of films. Um, what do you think there was just more more space for people of other nationalities, cultures, whatever, uh, to appear in movies then? Or it's interesting. So we did try to. We were really interested in um, Black, Indigenous women of color at this time. And so we have a small handful that we found who in films that survive and that we were allowed to include. So Bertha Regustus is a, a black comedian who's in Laughing Gas in an uh, earlier disc. Um, as you mentioned, so Lillian St. Cyr, who's Ho-Chunk. We also have Minnie Devereaux, um, who was Cheyenne and Arapaho, and she performed also under the names like Minnie Ha-Ha and Minnie Hee-Ha. Um, mm-hmm. And we include a film of hers with Fatty Arbuckle. Right. Um, Fatty and Minnie Hiha, and then as you mentioned, Sir Aoki, um, and so each of these people who plays also an indigenous ha- character. Yeah, who put? Yeah, who there? So there's like the a cross, mask. a cross racial performance there. So each of these people did make a number of other films. Um, I think Lillian Saint Cyr, her biographer, has attributed at least seventy films to her, mm-hmm. um, many of which don't survive, some of which do. Um, but so this is definitely the tip of the iceberg for these particular people's careers, but um, but focusing on comedy and on cross-dressing and on films that were available, these were the ones we were able to find. So I think people, people today often think that there were no people of color working in the um, American film industry, um, you know, in earlier decades, and that's totally untrue, although th- there were not a lot of them, and they definitely had constraints on their careers. I mean, if you see Minnie Devereaux, you're like, why is she not, you know, one of these big comedians with lots of series? You know, she's often, other than the one we included, she's like a side character in a number of films. Um, Lillian St. Cyr did get a lot of leading roles, including an important role in The Squaw Man um, Mm -hmm. by DeMille. Well, well, there is a biography of her, so you can see the complex things that led to kind of pushing, getting her getting pushed out of film and into live performance um, and um, regalia making. But uh, so I think you know there was some room. Um, I think there's a lot more research to be done on these folks and the and other people of color um, working at this time. 
Uh, I don't know, Meg, you, and at least you yeah. have more thoughts? Yeah. I mean, and we add more, we provide more context about these performers and their careers elsewhere in the set. We have spotlight essays in our 116-page open-source <laughs> edited booklet on Lillian St. Cyr and Minnie Devereaux, written by um, the Cherokee film scholar Liza Black. And um, Charlene Register has written a beautiful spotlight essay on Bertha Augustus and the black women of silent film comedy. Um, so it was a lot of these films featuring black and indigenous actors and characters in particular are very problematic. Even in Fatty and Minnie Heha, you know, she's totally dominant. Um, she, shot, she shoots up a white male saloon and asserts her kind of sexual desire throughout the film, but the film also has recourse to a lot of offensive caricatures and stereotypes. So we do include content warnings, um, a lot of further contextualization in the booklet and in um, video introductions by black and indigenous scholars and the audio commentary tracks. And we convened an anti-racism panel last summer um, to kind of discuss the ethics of curating um, and presenting these archives in the 21st century, because it's something maybe as uh, silent film viewers who, you know, consume physical media and attend festivals like Pordenone in Bologna, we often take the um, ubiquitous racism of silent cinema for granted or just sort of bracket it. We know it's there, we're really uncomfortable with it, but we don't always kind of talk about it and try to frame it. And we do, we did really, really want this set to be um, accessible and empowering for audiences who aren't usually kind of plugged into silent cinema. You know, we want to speak to contemporary feminist audiences and artists and activists so that kind of um, historical contextualization seemed especially crucial. Yeah, I mean, talking about, uh you know how you've presented this at other places i'm i'm looking at the the site and you know you mentioned the thing in puebla and of course pordenone i mean there's a lot of you guys have been been on the road with this thing it sounds like or or on zoom at least um tell me about uh tell me about how it's gone presenting it in different contexts around the world yeah, I mean, it's possible where you have 99 films already, You, it's possible to make different combinations of programs. So we're getting lots of, you know, interest from different countries, also in Europe, um, asking us to curate, you know, smaller programs and silent film festivals and, and so on. Turkey, right? Oh, yeah, yeah exactly. Istanbul. From Istanbul, we had like online uh, curated programs also during the lockdown, obviously. Uh, but yeah, they definitely like to continue that. But I think now we also get some uh, interest from Scandinavian countries now that they've heard about the DVD coming out soon. And mm -hmm. it's really fun to create these, you know, smaller programs that uh, maybe even can have a, like a team uh, binding them together. Actually, in the booklet, we're even making suggestions of, you know, creating these programs around teams uh, for those who may be interested in one aspect, maybe it's not, not too obvious from the overall framework. Yeah, we were just in Bologna at the Ritrovato uh, where um, Alif gave a wonderful presentation on Little Chrissia, and then we kind of gave a plug for the DVD Blu-ray set. And actually, uh, Brett, our producer, made these wonderful postcards and sent me 2,500 of them in the mail <laughs> to bring to Europe. So I was just I don't think there's anyone left in Bologna who has not received or been offered <laughs> one of our postcards. But it was really fun, you know, people who got the postcard or came 
to our presentation were coming up to us throughout the rest of the festival like hey like do you have anything i'm running this small porn festival in warsaw do you have any nasty women films for us or um we're also doing a four screening program at ucla film archive in august that laura and i are going to la to introduce in the glorious billy wilder theater so um I think that will be kind of our rep programming that's available on DCP for archives and theaters to curate. But we're also happy to concoct, um, you know, more specialized, uh, weirder, topical one-off screenings. So if you're listening to this and you're interested in bringing nasty women to your classroom or a <laughs> theater near you, um, please be in touch. Cinema's First Nasty Women will be released on September 27th by Kino Lorber. Links will be in the show post at nitrateville.com. Creating music for 99 individual pieces of film seems a daunting task. One that, in the case of cinema's first nasty women, fell to Canadian-born composer, pianist, and music supervisor Dana Reason. That's her music for a 1911 comedy, The Rembrandt of the Rue Le Pic, playing in the background. I spoke with Dana Reason from Cambridge, Massachusetts, where she's spending the summer, and asked her to start by telling us about her background and how it led to cinema's first nasty women. I'm uh, from Canada, but I live out in the West Coast now and um, been working as a composer and recording artist and been working on film uh, for several years um, and working uh, in particular with Brett Wood um, on some fun projects that he's been doing uh, with the silent film and, and now, of course, finding my way to be part of the Cinema's First Nasty Women here. So what other kinds of silent film projects have you worked on? There was the uh, big collection of the African-American collection. of four. I think it was a four DVD project that was um, kind of the brainchild of DJ Spooky, a.k.a. Paul Miller. Um, and then did some another uh, women in silent film, kind of a larger collection. Uh, I think uh, Shelley Stamps right. uh, was working on that one. And then, uh, what else did we do? Did a couple others, yeah. Well, so you're used to working with, I need to find 99 scores for this project. <laughs> that's that's just all in a day's work for you? Well, it's a little bit different. The approach I'm taking might be different than finding 99 scores, but finding 99 um, cool folks that want to think about what they can bring with their own unique approach to sound making and their own unique histories to a project like this. So looking for more like the individuals that might be perfect for this, you know? Okay. Yeah. 
Yeah, and most of these are, I mean, there's a couple of features on the set, but most of these are quite short. Um, which, you know, and I saw some of them with Portnone, and it was always kind of just when you got going, it's like the movie ends. Uh, what, uh, how did people, you know, learn to deal with, you know, what this particular project was about? Well, again, I think everyone tackled things differently. You get a sensibility, um, you know, so to get a range, some folks are working primarily sort of from uh, maybe a, a Western art classical tradition. And so they might be coming at this understanding that they might have, you know, done accompaniment for, you know, ballets or theater productions, right? Or lots of that 19th century classical music lends itself to sort of those early tenants in, you know, silent film, right? Sure. You kind of do a plug and play. And, and so for those people that have that, they bring that. For those that, and we have a number of sort of improviser-based jazz artists on this as well. So they're coming at it from, again, the origins of kind of sound, um, you know, ragtime music became the popular music in, in the early 1900s. And so they're kind of coming at it from that perspective, like stride pianos coming in. Um, we're at the cafe and we hear the things we can think about burlesque at that point, you know. So the, the American songbook is not quite solidified in these early at the kind of the time period of early cinema that we were looking at, but it's, it's around, right? We've got people again at the cafes playing music. We have exports of American culture going over and, and uh, hanging out in France um, and uh, you know, bringing, bringing the music over there. Okay. Yeah. I mean, you can be kind of programmatic, with it with some of these things but at this at the same time i mean anarchy is a big theme of this set so i guess you can kind of do whatever you want <laughs> well you know it's well i love that you say that because we have some you know things that are almost critiques of um the, the, the production of value of the storytelling itself, right? It's like, yeah, the anarchists, and we have a few scores that are just a little bit tongue-in-cheek in their responses. So when we have people like um, Elliot Brighton or Kinney Starr, for example, really doing a technological read on the, the film scoring, like completely like, no, we're not really doing, you know, stride piano here. We're going to do something else. We're going to like put in some beat music and distort it and um, kind of turn the the character of the music on its head, right? So it's like we will be heard making music in some of these films in spite of like not necessarily attenuated to the dialogue per, per se. Do you, yeah. you know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. But just putting like a little little question mark, a little tweak in there, like a hmm. Have you noticed that I'm not doing that? Like I maybe I'm <laughs> playing right now, and uh, y'all gonna have to get used to that. <laughs> so oh, yeah. I, can, I can hear heads exploding from the uh, silent movie music traditionalists. Uh, <laughs> but but that's okay. I mean, it's kind of what the whole set is about. So. Yeah. Yeah, playing with expectations, I guess you know. Yeah. Well, th yeah. So tell me, I mean. Give me a concrete example of like a film and how somebody approached it just to put you on the spot. Well, you're putting me on the spot so hard. Um, okay. Well, maybe I can think about, you know, Terry Lynn Carrington, um, since we were so excited to have her, 
Um, she's a Grammy Award winning musician and drummer, and she really wanted to be part of this project to think about, um, you know, what, what would it be like for her to score, you know, her film is a, a short eight, eight minute film. And uh, she puts in, you know, she's playing with the jazz world, right? And so she's, um, you know, utilizing traditional ways we might think about jazz piano and, and kind of an ensemble and um, playing that throughout the whole work. So you're just, you're in that world, a sonic place that jazz um, sits front and center in, in that, that score. Um, I'm trying to think. We have uh, some really fun klezmer takes from Dreamland Faces where they are, you can just hear them in a room. It sounds so organic, you know. Uh, they've got you know, accordion and strings, and you can hear they've got little sound makers, and it's very alive. It's almost as though you were like sitting in their front room while this this was playing playing out, and uh, they're having a gas making this these these musics and punctuating sort of whatever you know the slapstick and and all the things and it's very dynamic. It gives a a real fun dimension um, to to being the viewer. You know, you feel like you're maybe more than just a viewer. You're not a passive viewer. You're like actively surprised when sounds come in, um, and I think that that. Uh, level of kind of acuity and um, I don't know musicality um, is what's really delightful throughout this collection you know so you had a pretty good acquaintance with kind of music that is you know usually or music that works I hate to you know put on usually the, the way the music's supposed to be but no you know the kind of music that has worked in the past mm-hmm. do you think a lot of people that were involved, you know, had some familiarity with that or were they just coming at it as totally fresh eyes? Um, a nice balance. You know, we've got people who have definitely been playing, you know, silent film music, you know, live um, throughout the world. I mean, we've got a, a roster that's, you know, people from like Meg Morley's in the UK and Lillian Henley, I believe she's out there and Gancha Varols in Turkey. These are people that are, are playing playing a lot traditional sort of approaches to live film scoring, right? With their pianos mostly or their keyboards and such. Sure. But we also have people that this is their first time doing something like this. And this is what we were hoping to do. We were hoping to open up the roster in such a way that we could one, encourage, um, you know, really talented musicians that have not had an opportunity to score with visual music in this way um, to try their hand at it. Right. So there could be like we could ask questions, we could have a dialogue, we gave resources. Um, and so we're kind of building a, a, a whole legacy of different people, some very, very skilled people, as as I've said. And everyone's got mad skills. It's just have they had a lot of experience in this particular way of thinking musically. Right. Sure. sure. And what was our goal? All right. So I'm going to take a wild guess here that it's mostly uh, women doing the music or maybe all uh mm-hmm. <laughs> is that true well yes we this you know we may have the first collection in the history of film scoring that is um got 80 plus percent uh female scoring as the composers of record and this was a goal of ours. You know, we were also really, really trying to um, have not only diverse styles of making music 
to start to say, could we rethink um, how we're listening um, to film, uh, silent film? Is there another way to perhaps um, think think about what it could offer, right? Um, And then also we were trying to get the diversity of people, cultures, backgrounds, you know, all the things like that. And so we were very um, intentional Um, And this was uh, a very serious component of putting and trying to um, find folks, right? We were, we were finding folks in a pandemic on top of that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So how, how was that process? I mean, I assume, you know, a lot of these people, but you don't, I'm sure just have 45 people who would be perfect for this off the top of your head. Uh, No. There's no 45 perfect individuals who have dynamic lives and, you know, all the things going on. So it was very much like, you know, just um, getting people excited about the project and saying, you know, are you available? Like the world just canceled on all, you know, musicians, basically. Yeah, which means one of two things. You could either be really happy about that because you've got a little mini studio in your bedroom and you can work from anywhere or in the case of, I hate to say it, most females working in music don't have a bedroom full of a bunch of gear, right? So we've got some sort of things we're trying to like challenge and, you know, how can we make this possible for you to do this work when you don't have like a microphone to record your piano? You don't maybe don't even have a piano at home, right? Kind of thing. So, um, but we pushed through and, and we were very tenacious about this. Like, okay, like we called many people that really couldn't be on the project for lots of different reasons, right? Um, and so the folks that were able to show up for this, um, you know, said, I really want to be part of this collection because it's it's important to think about women in, in these kinds of ways. And I would love to be part of a collection that's trying to change the paradigm of how we see um the labor you know music composing for visual medium later labor kind of shifts some gears here right yeah yeah well yeah so give me another example of how somebody approached something on the project i mean yeah i'm at a bit of a disadvantage for asking these questions because i don't have a preview of the set yet but uh okay well kinney star for example um created She's a Canadian. Um, she created, again, a, a, a work that is sort of like a 90 degree angle towards <laughs> the, the visual. So it's, it's a beat oriented rendering. Um, there's a lot of looping in there and there's some distortion in there and you're in a space like that. And so it's almost like a noisy data read sonically of, of the film. Right. So kind of dealing with some gnarliness. So the the beats in a way are kind of the gnarliness of girls wanting to do what they want to do. And you're not letting them do what they want to do in the film. And well, we're just going to do what we want to do, that kind of thing. Right. So you can the defiance. I think it's a it's a score that is replicating the defiance, you know, but not play by play of like, well, you know, when the characters are doing their activities, we're not Mickey Mousing. That's not happening. It's just you know, um, some, some punk rock, you know, there's some punk <laughs> version on that and kind of going, you know, if you flip up your hands and go, nah, 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 the score is kind of doing nah, 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 the whole way through. Right. And you're like, 
you know what? All right with this. I'm like cool with this. Like, yeah, like let's do some more nana na na na. So what's the film? Do you remember? Oh gosh. Uh, I don't have the whole list in here. I should. I should have it memorized, shouldn't I? I'll have to follow up with you on that because like you know, there's ninety nine films, right? And some are in English and some are in French and some are in some other language. And um, yeah, I don't have the title in front of me, but I'll get that over to you. Okay. Um, yeah, you know, actually, I was thinking, do you have do you have like a clip from one of those that I could use as sort of outro music for this segment? Oh, I think I could. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Because yeah. that would that would be nice to let people actually hear a little bit of it. Okay. Yeah. So, so, so the traditionalists can start getting angry about it immediately. <laughs> well, we can give them something that they would love because there's absolutely some absolutely loveliness going on as well. I, I mean, I don't mean to say that you're going to just uh, be turned on your ear the whole time. Not at all. I would say the majority of the films are kind of matching that aesthetic, right? And and working from a very, um, like I said, everyone's so very musical. And they, you can tell the intentionality they had with the film. They, they had time to, to work on this. I mean, life had shut down. And so now you have time to like, think about what you would do with this, this film. So, um, people created some, some beautiful, some beautiful things. Um, I'm trying to think like Camilla Cortina Bello created a beautiful work, Naomi Nakanishi. I mean, we've got emerging, um, performers as well as, you know, Stable performers, Jane Gardner, beautiful score. Rebecca Sabine uh, did an absolutely gorgeous violin score. Just pitch perfect, really, um, for this. So then uh, Jose Ruiz from Mexico, absolutely stunningly beautiful playing and just understanding. So the, these sensibilities that everyone brought was just at kind of at the highest level. Um, and I think people will be very um, uh, excited to hear the music, you know. That was music for 1914's Petronil's Despair by a group called Violin Noir. Thanks to my guests, Maggie Hannefeld, Laura Horak, Alif Rongen Kainakchi, and Dana Reason. Theme music is by Kevin McLeod. Be sure to subscribe at the podcast app of your choice. And if you can, leave us a rating and a review at Apple Podcasts. Thanks.